0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Natalie Silver, director of head and neck research at Cleveland Clinic. She's here today to talk to us about novel vaccine research in head and neck cancer. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, thank you so
1: much for having me today.
0: Absolutely. So maybe to start, give us a little bit of an idea. What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? What do you do?
1: So I am a surgeon scientist. I spend a lot of time over in the Lerner Research Institute in the Center of Immunotherapy and Precision Immuno-Oncology, Um, I'm 80% research and 20% clinical. I'm also a uh, head and neck surgical oncologist. I have a practice uh, primarily out of TOSIG, but also in the operating room as well, doing head and neck cancer cases. And then I run a translational research lab inside the Lerner Research Institute investigating uh, novel therapeutics for head and neck cancer as well as the role of the oral microbiome in uh, head and neck cancer and tumor progression. I have the role as director of head and neck cancer at the Head and Neck Institute and um, in that role I'm really trying to kind of bridge the gap between uh, the clinical aspects of what we do and the basic science and translational research.
0: Very good. Well we have a wide range of people who may be listening in so let's start really basic and when we say head and neck cancer that's of course not a body you know organ you know we think of an organ Correct. like a lung cancer <laughs> so what re- remind people what does head and neck cancer entail
1: sure head and neck cancer is primarily mucosal lining cancers of the head and neck so uh the the most common cancer that we treat is squamous cell carcinoma and Those are cancers that affect the larynx, the tonsil, the back of the tongue, the front of the tongue. And so that's kind of a main group of head and neck cancers. Uh, But head and neck cancer also encompasses salivary gland cancer and other endocrine cancers such as thyroid cancer. Nasopharyngeal cancer is also another type of head and neck cancer that's kind of treated a little bit differently than some of the other ones. So it's a wide variety of different cancers that are primarily sort of from the skull base to the clavicle is what we, we take care of. And of course, as you know, I mean, there's sarcomas there as well. There's, you know, there's all different kinds of tumors that can kind of come up in the head and neck, and that's what we primarily take care of. But when you generally think about head and neck cancer, um, the most common by far excluding thyroid is the squamous cell cancers of, of the upper aerodigestive tract.
0: All right. Excellent. So when we think about uh, the fact that you spend most of your days researching new and better ways to treat cancer, um, I guess that would suppose that we have limitations in what we're currently doing. So what are kind of the way we treat now and what are the barriers to effective treatment that we're trying to to overcome?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, within uh, the squamous cell cancers of the upper aerodigestive tract, a big sort of diversion is the HPV viral related cancers, and then the HPV negative cancers. So um, the state of HPV positive cancer right now, um, the patients have a significantly better outcome. You know, this is HPV viral associated cancers primarily affect the tonsil and tongue base. And there have been a lot of um, advances and innovations and in de-intensification of, of, of treatment for these patients. And so, you know, the challenge we face with that cohort is really just we know that they're going to do well. You know, they have about an 85 to 90 percent overall survival at five years, which is excellent for the head, you know, for a head and a, for any cancer And so the goal is that these are primarily young-ish white men, you know, that that's the kind of common demographic that will have a long life after their cancer treatment. And so uh, there are a lot of ways that we're trying as a field to de-intensify treatment, whether it's de-intensification of... Of radiation or adding uh, surgery, you know, to to then decrease the postoperative uh, radiation dose or adding, uh, you know, uh, neoadjuvant treatments, and so that's kind of the the primary focus of, of that uh, part of our field and how we treat it. But the um, you know the major challenge that I see is really in these HPV negative patients. So these are typical uh, patients that have disease that are caused by uh, smoking and or drinking. However, you know, there's sort of a, a larger population that's coming up that have smoking unrelated cancers and they still have a pretty poor prognosis after five years, about 40%, you know, with advanced, say oral cancer. And so we primarily treat those patients with major surgery. So it, you know, it's primarily surgery and that involves often removing a significant portion of the oral cavity, or removing the larynx, or you know, a very big surgery, followed by six weeks of chemo radiation. Depend, you know, path-based uh, a guided treatment um, chemo is sometimes added to depending on on the pathologic features. But it's a very long, uh, difficult course for our patients, and um, and you know, the, the survival isn't great. I mean, we we give them the the biggest dose of radiation, we give them the biggest surgery we can possibly give a person and a lot of them still recur um, or they fail distantly. And so we're obviously not doing the best we can for our patients. And so I see a need in that area and that's where I focus a lot of my research is to try to find better strategies for patients that either recur or you know find ways to help patients with that type of, uh, HPV negative cancer.
0: All right. So we're, we're going to be talking about vaccines and that's certainly a a way to stimulate an immune response. Most of the time when we talk to patients and they mention immunotherapy, they're thinking about checkpoint inhibitors and things like that. So maybe just briefly tell us about the role of checkpoint inhibitors and head and neck cancers, and then we're going to move more toward vaccines.
1: Yeah. So, um, right now, um, Checkpoint inhibitors are approved for first-line uh, recurrent metastatic patients. So, um, you know, if you have had uh, prior chemo or not, um, if you have failed primary treatment and you know have recurrence uh, in head and neck, a lot of patients recur in the lungs, you know, distantly, sometimes local regionally. If it's not resectable, then uh, treatment with uh, pembrolizumab is you know indicated. And there've been a lot of studies that have shown benefit to this population with durable responses, you know, a large amount still do not respond, but there is encouraging data in that, you know, there are obviously some tumors, solid tumors in our spectrum that don't respond hardly at all to checkpoint inhibitors. And so it's been very encouraging that, you know, that Head and neck cancer patients do have about a twenty percent response rate, which is not great and can be approved upon. But it's definitely better than you know the one to two percent two-year survival after recurrent metastatic disease with the standard sort of chemotherapy regimens. So there's a lot of uh, interest in clinical trial efforts um, looking at combinations of of uh, immunotherapies as well as, you know, different ways to uh, treat these patients using some type of of immunotherapy.
0: Well, when we think about uh, a lot of the work you do is related to vaccines, and certainly the success story from a vaccine standpoint is with HPV-positive cancers in terms of prevention. But tell us a little bit about therapeutic vaccines as well.
1: Great. So that's exactly true. So there's been a great success with the uh, HPV vaccine And that is, of course, a prophylactic vaccine, you know, a preventative vaccine. And and so, you know, you can get your kids vaccinated and it has already shown decreases in incidence of cervical cancer and other cancers. And with therapeutic vaccines, though, as as we know, you know, this is something that needs to be administered pretty quickly, you know, um, in preventative uh, vaccines. They're often administered in several doses. You know, it takes a while for the immune system to to develop immunity towards an antigen. But for these types of therapeutic vaccines, you know, the the idea is really that it is an immunotherapy, you know, a uh, anti-tumor agent. Our formulation is delivered intravenously. So it's very powerful um, compared to some of the other uh, mRNA vaccine platforms that do not uh, administer uh, intravenously, um, ours is delivered intravenously so that we can elicit a very strong immune response against a tumor. And so that's one of the main differences between sort of a prevent preventative vaccine and a therapeutic vaccine.
0: So what kind of work are we doing currently to develop these therapeutic vaccines?
1: You know, there are a lot of uh, companies that are working on therapeutic vaccine development, um, but My research is, um, and my platform, it was developed at the University of Florida, where I came from uh, just eight months ago. I've been at Cleveland Clinic. So I worked on this for uh, several years with my partner, Elias Sayer, who was a pediatric neuro-oncologist at the University of Florida. And he had been working on this platform for about 10 plus years. And I joined him um, when I joined the faculty at the University of Florida And um, he has been developing mRNA vaccines, therapeutic mRNA vaccines for pediatric brain cancer specifically, and adult brain cancer. And when I joined him, I started investigating this platform for uh, head and neck cancers. And so the platform that we have is actually a personalized or tumor-derived vaccine. So we actually take a biopsy from a patient. And, or from a tumor resection or, you know, depending on what happens first. And we actually create the mRNA from the tumor itself. And so we're able to basically represent the transcriptome. So we're basically representing everything, all the mRNA that is made in a tumor. You know, so we're able to amplify that. So we do that in the lab, we amplify that, and then we complex it with a liposome, a, a nanoparticle, and deliver it intravenously to the patient. Our formulation has um, you know several patents and um, has a a formulation in which it enables us to deliver a very high payload of mRNA uh, to the patient. And what that does is the mRNA with the nanoparticle or the nanoliposome essentially transfects immune cells, dendritic cells, um, for antigen presentation. Now, you know, our formulation, we don't know exactly what antigens we're actually presenting. They're tumor antigens, though. Um, And so there are different ways to make these mRNA formulations, including, um, you know, we can do targeting. Uh, We can target, say, E67, or if we have a known fusion. um, One of the things we're actually looking at is possibly sarcomas, rhabdosarcomas that have, you know, known fusions that are pretty antigenic. And so, you know, there are ways that we can, we can have a specific target, but the, the formulation that we actually have IND approval to use um, in humans is a tumor derived formula. And we have found that that's been, you know, highly efficacious a lot, you know, a lot of people kind of say, well, why don't you target? Why don't you target? But our preliminary data is very uh, solid looking at, you know, all of using the formulation we have. And the idea that my mentor used to say is, you know, we're not, we're kind of not smart enough to out trick the tumor yet. And so we kind of deliver all the possible uh, scenarios, you know, to the immune system and the immune system can kind of figure it out and, and initiate this uh, potent immune response to the tumor.
0: What do you, uh, do you have preliminary data on tolerability of these vaccines?
1: We have done all the preliminary uh, toxicity studies in mice, and actually we have done the preliminary toxicity studies in dogs with uh, naturally occurring GBM and osteosarcoma. And then I'm actually running a trial at the University of Florida with the College of Veterinary Medicine in cats with oral cancer. So we have um, treated... Five cats now with naturally these are you know spontaneously occur, these are pets these are not you know lab cats or anything like that they are people's pets that have cancer and we have done you know dose escalation and we've been you know investigating the safety and so that was uh, primarily the canine data from my partner um, contributed to uh, FDA approval as well as the, as some of the feline data we were a little bit you know after that. Um, and so we have definitely investigated all of these, and we think that this is a safe vaccine. Um, yes, of course, you know there. The, some of the dogs had fevers, and there, you know, there is a profound immune response because. A lot of the efficacy is actually driven by interferon alpha, which is a very potent interferon that you know can kind of mimic being really sick. And so we anticipate with human that we are going to encounter some side effects. But in general, it is very safe uh, as far as we know. Um, we are excited that in... The end of March, we are actually going to be treating our first human at the University of Florida with brain cancer. We already have enrolled the patient and made the vaccine. We're waiting for the patient to finish um, radiation, and then we are going to be, you know, doing the first in-human uh, administration. Uh, my hope is to, um, you know, once that is shown to be safe, hopefully, in <laughs> um, at least maybe, you know, a couple patients. We will then uh, plan to apply for uh, FDA uh, amendment to add head and neck as a site, and I have a lot of preliminary data in mice um, demonstrating efficacy, as well as you know in the in our feline trial um, demonstrating safety. Um, in in head and neck, I think we are going to be using this vaccine sort of in conjunction with checkpoints, so PD one. I, I imagine that we will initiate the trial in patients that have failed, you know, first line PD one in the recurrent metastatic setting. And then the trial that we're, we are thinking about would be um, then administrating our vaccine and then restarting PDL one, because the data that I have in, in mice demonstrates significantly sy- a synergistic effect with with checkpoints. So as you know, you know, with, these types of things, it's usually not one thing that does the job, you know? And so I think, um, I think this is obviously, this is a complicated disease to treat. And I think that the uh, checkpoint along with the increased antigen expression and, and, uh, act- and immune cell activation is going to be the best way to decrease the tumors in these recurrent patients that have really difficult to treat cancers.
0: And we think from a logistic standpoint, you patient shows up, they have a tumor. We talked about the, a little bit about the time frame involved. Um, you have to get the mRNA. You have to get the nanoparticle. You have to administer. What kind of time frame were you looking at?
1: It takes about a week to make it. So that's not bad. Yeah. Right now we're making it in Florida. Um, eventually I'd like to make it here. You know, we, I've talked with uh, Tim Chan, who's my boss here over at the Learner Research Institute about, um, the GMP facilities that they're working, you know, that's all kind of in the pipeline. So eventually we could probably make it here, but right now, you know, it's, it's been, you have to, it's a huge process obviously to get um, another site approved. So um, we would make it in Florida and then they would ship it here, Uh um, which my partner, uh, Dr. Sayer, who is the pediatric neuro-oncologist he has already um, gone through the process of shipping because his trial that he, you know, he's initiating is a multi-site trial. And so, you know, for a lot of cancers that we work on, I mean, this, you know, this can't be just done in one center, you know, we need to get the patients. And so, you know, it is stable to ship. There is, you know, quality control and things like that. So logistically it takes about a week to make and then um, shipping as far as we know and have tested is safe and then
0: you know we could administer so looks like lots of exciting things will be coming up in the vaccine area yeah yeah maybe we could just touch really briefly on something that you mentioned and that was the the oral microbiome we you hear a lot about gut microbiome and you don't hear as much about oral microbiome don't tell, tell me a little bit about what you're doing in that area
1: So um, I'm very interested in this area and we have some really exciting preliminary data and actually a paper that is currently under review in the journal, Neoplasia and the cancer microbiome issue. And um, what we have found is that the oral bacteria associated with tumor, you know, versus adjacent normal is very different. Now this is not really a sort of new um, finding, but what we did uh, find in our recent study, in collaboration with uh, MD Anderson, um, which is where I trained and I have some, you know, some mentors and partners that are still working there, we looked at patient specimens, patient samples, and we de- demonstrated that there was a preponderance of Fusobacterium, which is sort of, you know, it, it's known to, to be involved in colon cancer and other cancers. It's kind of a, it's called a pathogenic bacteria, pathobiont, which is, which is a Pathogenic bacteria in the mouth. And um, we demonstrated that fusobacterium is significantly associated with the tumor versus the normal tissue. And we were able to show a correlation between that and PDL1 expression. And so, what we did was that we then did some work in the lab and looked at some of our, our head and neck cell lines. Mm-hmm. And we infected, uh, infected the cell lines with fusobacterium and other strains of bacteria. And demonstrated that we can actually induce PDL1 mRNA expression and as well as protein expression. So, you know, our hypothesis is that you know, there are certain bacteria in the oral cavity that can really uh, promote PDL1 expression among other types of immunosuppressive uh, checkpoints and contribute to potential you know, tumor cell evasion or tumor progression. Uh, we, we have a lot of ongoing work now also with. Um, uh, Muhammad Dweedar in the microbial culturing core here at Cleveland Clinic. So there's a lot of really cool uh, work going on in the Lerner Research Institute in the metabolic section, where um, there's so many uh, resources for investigators. Um, they have they offer a lot of sequencing for bacteria, and um, they have a germ-free facility. You know, which is really great for preclinical investigations in microbiome. So we're kind of going full force ahead with all that kind of stuff too. And we're, we're relating it to our vaccine work in that I think that this is all, we're, the, the focus is going to be on the tumor immune microenvironment. So, you know, I think that whether you're looking at a vaccine effect on a tumor or you're looking at bacteria effect on a tumor, you know, there, it's still the same fundamental question is that, you know, what is this doing to the tumor? Is it, you know, is it, is it causing, um, increase infiltration of pro-tumorogenic, uh, uh, you know, immunosuppressive immune cells, or is this causing infiltration of anti-tumor immune cells? And so that we're remaining focused on the tumor immune microenvironment and strategies to look at that, but looking, you know, also at bacteria and how that plays a role. And I think, you know, like you said, the, the tumor, uh, microbiome is very different i think than sort of how the gut interplays with checkpoints you know the gut is um i think that it's been you know established or or there's a lot of incredible research uh you know out of md anderson and other great institutions demonstrating that you know specific gut profile can dictate you know how you respond to checkpoints and if you have antibiotics you know it could really affect that and i think that the story is very different in the oral cavity you know it I think that bacteria within a tumor, it's, you know, they don't play kind of by the same rules as the gut bacteria. And I think it's, it's a very different question. You know, what happened? I think that the, that the oral bacteria plays some more of a pathogenic role, you know, in, in that tumor's existence and resistant to treatment. And I think there's a lot of cool questions and, and interesting new techniques that can be used to kind of look at this question.
0: Well, you're doing some fascinating work and best of luck as it moves forward. And, we really appreciate the insights.
1: Thank you so much uh, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.